Our New Testament reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 15. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, everyone. Let's, uh, let's pray as we contemplate this text. Father God, I pray that you would give us receptive hearts, that you would give us open hearts. Wherever we're coming from this morning, let us sit and ponder the fact that you tell us that we're not alone in this journey, and that all of us, and all of who we are, with our idiosyncrasies, our failures, our hurts, our hidden secrets, and yes, our sin, that we are totally known and totally loved. Help us to believe that we are in this room for a reason, that you have invited us here, and you have something to say to us, and so we pray that you would give us that. Let us hear from you. Let us see in these pages what you want us to see, and would you give us grace, we pray. Amen. Oliver Franks, you may have heard of him, was a distinguished professor uh, at Oxford before World War II and then became the ambassador, British ambassador to the United States in the years after World War II, leading up to the Cold War. And uh, as ambassador, he was in touch daily with both the president and the prime minister on either side of the Atlantic, and he frequently needed, in days uh, prior to the internet, to get important, urgent messages across, across the Atlantic. And often these were top secret and were very dangerous for them to get picked off. So it was far too risky to just pick up the phone in those days because of lack of encryption and the possibility of bugging. And so they would send things across the Atlantic each and every day in this diplomatic bag, and it would fly across, get dropped off, get picked up, and fly back across. 
And everyone knew about this diplomatic bag. And so if something was really important, if something was top secret, if something was highly uh, potentially damaging, what Oliver Franks would do, would, instead of putting it in this, in this diplomatic bag, he would send it regular mail. He would put it in a manila envelope and mail it to his counterpart across the pond. No one would ever look at that plain brown envelope and think, this must contain state secrets. I've got to open this and see what's inside. You see, the thing that carried the message didn't look all that impressive. It wasn't all that important, but what it contained were top secret state secrets. The Corinthians have been looking at this envelope, that is Paul, and they see his public persona, they see that he's in and out of jail, they see that he walks funny, that he's not very good looking, he has this unrefined speaking style compared to those that are orators, those that are arguing the rhetoricians that are in Corinth, and they've concluded that there's not much remarkable about him. In fact, he's very unimpressive. They ought to look, he ought to look, much more important. After all, they're the Corinthian church. They deserve him to be more important. The writers of Scripture are constantly writing from the perspective of the bottom and not the top. They're writing from the margins of life, not from the position of cultural influence and power, from the periphery of what is important in that city and in the cities the Bible is written from. And so, in many ways, we have to wrestle with the fact that the more successful, the more powerful, the more we are at the center of cultural influence, the more that we are able to chart our own course, the more difficult it is to open up the Bible and really get what it's trying to tell us. The Bible is written consistently from the bottom. And of course, we see this most clearly and most consistently in the life of Jesus, that ultimate truth, ultimate beauty come to us in a very plain manila envelope that no one would mistake for the coming long-awaited king. No one would look at his outward appearance and say, that is who I want to follow. And then he chooses to send out heralds. He chooses to send out messengers. He chooses to send out people like you and like me, jars of clay, people that aren't that necessarily impressive, people who aren't on the top of life. And Paul is one of those people. Paul is one of those messengers, and he actually knows what it's like to be on the top. Highly educated, highly brilliant, studying underneath the, the teacher of Israel. He was part of the religious elite, and he throws it all away for this man named Jesus because he's in, he encounters this person who claims to be the Messiah, and it turns Paul's world upside down. Now, we often hear stories and testimonies, and we're attracted to stories and testimonies that are exactly the opposite, right? Someone's story, someone's life is spiraling out of control. They're addicted. They're broken. They're poor. They're debt-ridden. And suddenly they find Jesus, and everything gets put back together again. And they're on top again. Now they're winning, maybe even the Super Bowl. 
You get a lot of people thanking Jesus for the Super Bowl. Well, Paul's life goes in the exact opposite direction. He's on the run. He's chased like prey. He's hungry. He's beaten regularly. He's imprisoned all because of Jesus. And for him, this sort of hardship strangely confirms for him that he's following Jesus, and it confirms his calling for him. This doesn't make any sense to the Corinthians who want him to be important. They want to ride first class. They expect to be upgraded. They want to be a part of a church that's winning and getting attention, and they're disappointed in Pastor Paul because he's not outwardly impressive. He's not much to look at. He's a plain manila envelope. Well, he's trying to get them, and by extension this morning, get us to see that the world doesn't work the same way anymore for them because they too have met Jesus. Up is down and down is up. And he says in verse 3, which we didn't read, and it's kind of a mouthful, but it's very important. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. There's so much going on in that passage, and maybe we should have read that and done a sermon in that one, but simply what Paul is telling us here is that he knows what they're thinking, and he knows probably what we're thinking, and surely he's thought about it himself from time to time. You're right. I'm not much to look at, and frankly, you're not either. (laughs) But we don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ, crucified and alive. He says, light shines out of the darkness, which is one of the most foundational, basic, and most difficult insights of the gospel that each of us will be trying to learn and relearn again and again, as long as we're alive. It's that difficult. John, the gospel writer, tells us about Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, though the world was made through him. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, we have a problem. Do you see it? Think about our own cultural context. Think about the amount of wealth that is in this room alone relative to the rest of the world. There are cities around the world that have less wealth than is in the pockets of the people in this room. Most of the people in this room, with few exceptions, fall into the type of person who actually rejected Jesus who had a hard time listening to Paul, 
we're the majority class. We're generally prosperous, at least relative to the rest of the world. So it's no wonder then that our circumstances, when they shift into difficult territory, that's when we begin to doubt God's promises and His presence. And it's exactly the opposite, as missiologists tell us about the developing world, the global south where the church is exploding, that they don't see hardship and difficulty as disproof of God's presence and His love. They actually see it confirming the very story that they've read in the Bible. And maybe they would look at us and say, have you not read your Bible? Do you not understand that this is what generally happens that we in this room are exceptionally unusual and exceptionally blessed. In the developing world, the loss of a loved one, grinding poverty, landlessness, drives them into the arms of God, not further away. Now, I don't mean in any way to demean our struggles and our pain and our hurts and the doubt that ensues after them, because they are real. It's hard. But certainly in America, it's easier to see God in our successes and in our dominance and our cultural influence and our plenty than in our failure and in our shortcomings and in our struggle. And it's such a strange reality for those whose religion has the cross at the center of it. Jesus Christ died. He was a victim. The reigning empire and the religious establishment crucified him. And this is the God that seeks you this morning. And there is no other. This is the kind of God who wants relationship with you. That's quite an invitation, huh? <laughs> Couldn't I make it a little bit more attractive? Come to Jesus and you'll get wealth and prosperity and life will start to come back together and reintegrate in all of the ways that you want. It may happen, but it likely won't. That reintegration will take time and it will take hard work and it will take looking at yourself through the lens of the gospel over and over. You see, the God that seeks you this morning doesn't promise to whisk you away from the darkness but He promises to be with you in it. Now, Paul gives us not just a word about God and about who He is, but he tells us a word about us and how we fit into this picture. And it's not all that flattering. <laughs> Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Clay pottery in the Palestinian world was the materials of common people. And if you went into a home, pitchers, wash basin, basins, pots, and yes, jars would be made out of clay, made out of pottery. And it wasn't just food and water or wine that were stored in these things, but oftentimes it was the most valuable things in that home because you didn't have a lockbox or a bank that you could go and store these things in. And so they put these valuables the family heirlooms in clay pots and clay jars. And Paul compares the Corinthians and compares you, if you're a Christian, to 
these clay jars to Palestinian pottery. And he says, you may not look like much. In fact, you may not be much, but you carry something priceless. Priceless. And that treasure that he's talking about in verse 7 is described in the verses that we read. The treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus died and rose again. And that He invites everyone to be drawn up into that story and into His healing presence and into His embrace. That's the treasure that resides in you and in I. Not because of our power or our wisdom or our intelligence, but because by His Spirit He takes up residence in His people. You may be, in fact, Paul says you are, a vessel made of common, very run-of-the-mill clay. You're fragile, you're easily broken, and yet God has entrusted you, and by extension this church, with this priceless treasure. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us as a church? Well, maybe we can look at what Paul says it means for him. In verses 8 through 11, he gives us this resume of his accomplishments, a resume of his deeds. This is very common uh, literary practice in the ancient world. It's kind of like our resume or our CV. This is everything that makes me the person that you should hire. Well, what does he say? These are things that no one would list, no one would want on their resume. He says he's pressed in on every side but not crushed. Do you remember uh, the trash compactor scene in Star Wars before Luke Skywalker Skywalker calls C-3PO and he's yelling, you got to turn off the trash compactor and they're all being crushed and literally the life is being, you know, seeping out of them and C-3PO finally turns it off but they're pressed in on every side but not crushed, not killed, thankfully. He's perplexed, but not in despair. In chapter 1, which we didn't read earlier this year, Paul talks to the Corinthian church about this near-death experience. It marks him. And he says, I barely got out of there with, his lot, with my life. He doesn't give us much details, but he is very near to that experience, and he's reflecting upon it. And he says he's perplexed because of that experience. It's left him immobilized and fragmented. And he's at a total loss how to act. Have you been there? Has something been going on in your life where it hasn't taken you completely out? You haven't lost your mind, but you don't know how to keep going forward. You don't know what to do next. Well, for Paul, this current situation does not invalidate the story of God that he has been living. He has learned to sit in the midst of those difficult circumstances and not expect right away to get out of them. He's learned that those valleys are just as much part of God's story that he's writing with Paul in it as the peaks, as the joys, as the great things that happens. He doesn't sit in the midst of that perplexion and wonder, well, maybe God is not real. Maybe God has finally abandoned me once and for all. He has learned to sit in the midst of painful 
circumstances, but not grow despondent. And then he says, I'm persecuted, but not abandoned. As I said, Paul was literally pursued from city to city like prey. The religious establishment was hunting him down and trying to catch up with him. And when they did, they would stir up dissent and stir up the city to try and get Paul either killed or beaten or thrown in jail. And what we probably need to think about is that this was Paul's job before he met Jesus. He was the chief prosecutor, persecutor. He was the one that was going around and gathering up Christians and having them killed. So who are these people that are now chasing him? They're likely his former friends, maybe his protégés, and they're now chasing Paul. Can you imagine that, how your friends may turn on you and how that would feel? But he claims, strangely, I'm not abandoned. And then he says, finally, I'm struck down but not destroyed. As I said, when these dudes caught up with him, their job was to stir up trouble. And he was often beaten. He was often hungry. And maybe he's thinking of the time that we hear about that just outside of the city of Lystra, which is in Turkey, where he was stoned and actually left for dead. This is what, for Paul, it meant to follow Jesus, and these are the things that confirmed for him his calling as a messenger. Why does he tell them this? Why does he write this to the Corinthians? Couldn't he have talked about all of these beautiful, joyful things that maybe he had encountered too? Couldn't he have written us a better invitation for those of you that are here exploring faith, that we could say, look at these great things that will happen to your life. You should come to Jesus. That's not what Paul's approach is. He wants them to see and believe and trust the story of God despite their circumstances. Whenever he runs into trouble, he always goes straight to this alternative narrative, this alternative event that happened that explains everything the story that God is writing that is at the center based upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Why are you here this morning? Well, maybe you say, well, my alarm went off and I got up and I took a shower and I had a cup of coffee and then another and maybe a third and now I'm here. And that's why I'm here because this is my home and this is where I show up. Or maybe you're here because you're looking for answers and you think maybe you could find the answers here. And all of that would be true, right? But it's not the real reason that you're here. The real reason that you're here is that the God of the Bible is real and He invited you here and that He drew you here and that He gathered all of us here and that it's no accident that any of us are here. You see, there's events and there's circumstances and there's the sort of superficial reasons that everyone's here, but then there's the real reason, the real narrative, and it's that God is at work in your life and that He longed to meet with you and He longed to be with you this morning, right now. That's the alternative story. In Paul's circumstances, he is pressed in, he's 
perplexed, he's persecuted, he's struck down, but you see he's carrying around this treasure, this priceless treasure that changes everything, and it allows him to re-narrate these events so that though all of those things remain to be true, God has not changed those yet. He has not rescued him from the circumstances, and yet he's not crushed, he's not in despair, he's not abandoned, he's not destroyed. Friends, I've needed these words in my life in the last couple of weeks. My circumstances are nothing like Paul. I don't want to give you that impression. Life is going fairly okay for me. But I get concerned about external factors. I get concerned about the church's budget because I'm the pastor, and that's what I'm paid to do, and that's what my world sometimes revolves around. And maybe you've looked around recently in our church, and you've said, wait, where did everyone go? (laughs) Why Why is the pew next to me now empty when it used to be full? Well, I was talking to a pastor friend yesterday, and I was telling him about how our denominational move last year gave everyone the opportunity to reevaluate their relationship within town. And some of you, most of you that are here today, reevaluated and took a step forward. You leaned in to what God was doing in the story of in town. You re-narrated, and you said, this is what I want to be a part of. I believe God is present, and He is on the move at in town, and you reevaluated and stepped in. But some did the same thing, and although they may not have disagree, disagreed with the move, they saw other reasons and a time to say, maybe it's time for me to look at other places to belong. And so our budget and our Sunday mornings can look a little thin from time to time. And I told him, and here's where the story of God breaks in, is that so many of you have leaned in. And I told him, I wish that you could meet them because they are awesome. And they're the kind of people that you would want to plant a church with. They're the kind of people that you would want to build a movement around. Those are the people, though less than before, who are showing up on Sunday morning. And though, because (laughs) every pastor I know has dreams, and I don't mean the metaphorical visionary dreams, I mean actual dreams. And these dreams come in the form of two things. One is that you show up on Sunday morning and you come up here and there's nothing to read. There's no notes. That happens at least monthly for me. (coughs) The other one is that you show up here and nobody else does. And that comes about monthly as well. Uh, So I get discouraged. And I have times where I doubt my calling. And I think, what is God doing here? And I have to read one more email that says, we're going to look at the church down the street from now on. And so in-town looks less and less impressive and less and less important. And it's easy for me to personalize that. If I was more articulate, if I had more time, if I was more charismatic, If I was more persuasive, then our pews would be full and the coffers would be overflowing. And it all lands on me, right? It's all about me. If I could just do 
better. But let me tell you something. This is exactly the kind of thinking that Paul is trying to disabuse the Corinthians of. And he's been working on me. It's slow, but I'm starting to get it. Because here's the thing. Maybe we don't look like much. I certainly don't look like much. But there is a priceless treasure here. And that in God's story, for some reason, He has deposited it here for this time and this season, for this city. And I still believe that. Whenever Paul encounters a problem, he always goes straight to the gospel. He goes straight to the cross and straight to the resurrection to re-narrate for his readers, for his churches, and for himself why it's important and that there is a treasure that lies at the center of this story. And he tells them in verses 10 and 12 that life actually comes through death, that his suffering, his imprisonment, his beatings, his hunger is for them. His dying is to bring them life. But why does this make any sense at all? Why would anyone choose that? And it's because of verses 13, 14, and 15, and we'll end with this, where he always goes, to the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us. To the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us and present us with you to himself. When things are falling to pieces, and if my pastoral experience tells me anything, there's a lot of people here right this moment whose lives either are falling to pieces or it feels like it. When the future is uncertain, and that is true for everyone in this room, Paul goes to the resurrection. And that's his only counsel. That's his only hope. He builds a lot of pastoral theology from that, but that's the center. And you can never move beyond it. And you can never get better than that. What looked like, you see, the greatest injustice and greatest defeat that the world has ever seen was actually God conquering death was actually God offering forgiveness, was actually God giving all of us a new way to live, in fact, a new reason to live. You see, Jesus on the cross was the ultimate clay jar, and He was shattered, and His treasure spilt out. Him being shattered revealed the most priceless treasure that the world could ever comprehend. And so I invite you, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your joy, take hold of this treasure which re-narrates those struggles, but also is so much better than any joy you could possibly have. Let His resurrection re-narrate your story, in town story, because His resurrection is yours and it's ours. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, We pray that you would make these words real to us, not just as we sit here with our notes in front of us and these thoughts present, but we pray that you would help us to learn 
to re-narrate our journey as we walk out of here and as we encounter opposition, as we encounter heartache, as we encounter loneliness and friendlessness and abandonment. We pray that what we've heard this morning, what we've seen from you, would actually help us in those situations. And we pray for in town, whether we grow less, whether we grow more materially and numerically, we pray that this would be what is at the center. Your story of sending Jesus to live and to die and to be risen again for us. We pray that would be us. We pray that would narrate us. We pray it would change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.